The Movement Brainery. Hey guys, this is episode two of the three-episode recap of the season. One of my goals for this podcast was to compile some of the clinical pearls from the physical therapists I've interviewed, who almost without exception made huge lasting impacts on clinical practice. Some of whom were clinicians for really long periods of time. Something you just don't see that often. Think about Greg Johnson and Michael Moore, who are still clinicians to this day, into their 70s. While we all should be trying to integrate modern evidence into our practice, and certainly our guests are good examples of that, there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from someone who embodied a reflective practice over the course of decades. So that's what I want to talk about today. What advice do these individuals have for the next generation? And were there any common themes? So when you get difficult patients, it's essential to reflect on that patient's presentation. And if you're struggling, thinking about what you can do to alter the direction of treatment in some way. This requires a good understanding of fundamental concepts and being able to see the field, if you will, so that you can make a good judgment. In fact, this is an essential part of deliberate practice, the framework Anders Ericsson developed to describe the path to a higher level of practice. You have to think about what you're doing or you don't learn. For people that have embodied a reflective practice, it was no surprise that these clinicians and leaders recommended developing one early on. One of the best examples of this was Joe Farrell. Experience counts. Um, I'll be honest, if you don't treat a lot of patients and you're in our business and you don't really self-reflect, self-analyze your your own performance with patients, you're not going to grow. Reflection, learning how to communicate, um, self-analysis. And that's part of the thing I think really kept me in the profession as long as I was in it, because you don't really meet many people that practice 42 years. You don't meet us. There's not many of us. Well, I asked myself, what's, what's your goal? Why are you pursuing all these things? And it wasn't so I could stand in front of a class and uh, demonstrate that I understood uh, a particular technique, but rather than that, I wanted to produce outcomes with my patients. I, uh, wanted to be capable of uh, doing everything that a a physical intervention uh, strategy might do for uh, patients when they came in. And I thought, what you're not doing is uh, having anybody watch you who knows what they're doing, look and see what it is that you're not doing. If you don't look in the mirror and honestly assess what's in there, well... It's not going to change. The metacognition uh, uh, with the trusted mentor, that's that's really, I mean, that combination, it's of no value to just uh, uh, break yourself down and tear yourself down about what's missing. What are you going to do about it? Uh, The process of being able to explore every day what we do, uh, you have to have an inquisitive mind. You have to always be willing to to change what you're doing, to challenge everything that you're, you're utilizing. Any paradigm that you have needs to be on a regular basis challenged and, 
and tested. And how do you test that? You do it clinically. And every time you run into a problem or a challenge, it's just a new opportunity to learn and to change what you're doing. And I learned early on that I just couldn't allow guilt and feeling of, of insufficiency to be a driver for me, that I always had to have failures as being a stepping stone to my next discovery. Somewhat related to reflecting on your practice is clinical reasoning or critical thinking within a clinical setting. These concepts were touched on by Tim Firon, Barb Stevens, and Margaret Anderson, all of whom were directly taught by or strongly influenced by Jeff Maitland, perhaps one of the early developers of a system of clinical reasoning in physical therapy. Um, critical thinking, communication skills are huge, um, and then precision with their manual skills so that their testing is more accurate and gives them more accurate information. And then to develop the skills uh, of metacognition and critical thinking about how they think and how they do things. Clean analytical thinking. What's that mean? That means analyzing what they have in front of them and what they have left to work with and then reassessing what their particular skill set is where they're at and what they can be good with and help that individual to get from point A to point B. I see people doing things because that's what they do as opposed to because that's what the patient needs. Uh, If they can't think cleanly and ascertain what the patient needs, what they have to work with, and what their skill set is and therefore take them from one point to another, uh, then they're just going to work. Uh, And I see that all the time. So uh, in, in a, uh, yeah, really in the, in the nutshell, if I had to say one thing, it's, it's really consistent thinking. And you just can't turn it off because the thinking should be happening uh, while you're uh, examining the patient, while you're treating the patient, because while I'm treating, there's an examination, an assessment of the uh, technique that I'm doing going on to decide am I accomplishing what it is that I set out to accomplish. And then you have to retain the intellectual honesty. This is still part of the thinking process. Let's have a look. Let's see if I've actually changed that thing, that short-term goal for the in-session change. Uh, And if you haven't, to be honest with the patient, because they know. When it comes to actually treating patients, there is essentially no mention of any specific technique or approach being the right way to help the patient most of those we interviewed actually recognized that it was your behavior around the patient that was so critical. Craig Johnson commented on this in one of our bonus episodes. Just because on one person you got rid of their headache with a great C1 manipulation doesn't mean that the next person needs that same procedure. Their headache needs to be evaluated as an N of one. And every individual has to be considered that they're the end of one. And our job is, is to manage them, not to match them to some kind of research article that I've studied. Don't skip on evaluating the patient and listening to them. Develop a personality with your patients that is a healing personality, a listening, healing, caring personality. Don't let anything interrupt you when you're with a patient. I still like the private room. They deserve privacy. When you're with your patient, that's the only thought in your mind. And that's your focus. 
And if you do that well, the word will get around and you will be a success. Facilitating independence in patients was another topic that came up frequently. It's interesting because independence is something that is mentioned by patients often in the research and even comes up as one component of therapeutic alliance. Exercise affects every organ system in the body. Now, you got to really stop and think about that. Exercise is the answer. If you can impact every organ system in the body, wow, you've got the most powerful tool there is. And manipulative therapy and that stuff really should take a second, uh, you know, a back seat. And so my practice was like that. I looked at everyone as how could I get them exercise? If I saw a way to do uh, a genuinely therapeutic uh, active orientation of treatment, uh, I would always start there and I would very rarely find that I needed to go back to uh, manipulation. Uh, although having said that, anybody who's listening to this, I'm not dismissing the skill. Uh, I don't remember the last day that went by that I don't manipulate. Uh, it's just that it's not, uh, it's not my first uh, tool uh, because what I'm trying to do is get people to the point where they don't need me. So I still think it's a valuable asset, but it's one of the spokes in the wheel. Uh, and the ultimate wheel is that they can get on and ride out so they don't need to come back. That's what everybody really wants. They want to be independent. Most of those that we interviewed this season were clinicians for a long period of time. So while I was curious about how they looked at clinical practice and growing as a clinician, I was also curious how they each stayed in the profession for as long as they did. Although the answers had some nuance, they mostly focused on one thing that people kept coming back to, passion about helping the patient. One of the people that came back to this the most was Dennis Morgan. If you're focused on the patient, not about there's a meeting, not about, but I'm going to make that patient better. I'm going to do everything in my power. You know, it's amazing what you can uh, remember about a patient. And if you communicate, you're only thinking about them. You're really with them. Listen to the patient. Learn everything you can about them. It was a very powerful message, and it just stuck with me. And that's probably why I rebelled against some of this other stuff that came along later we have to face, because I knew it wasn't important, at least for the patient. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about what can I do to impact their body and do something. So you come up with something. It ain't in the books, or at least it hasn't been written yet. And, you know, you, you know, it's like when Maggie grabbed us to take that guy out and shake him upside down. That's how I think. I'm thinking, what can I do? Sometimes it's on the edge. You know, you might want to have, be a little careful hanging someone upside down, right? You could get sued. And I've been lucky. Maybe I've just been lucky. But I've always, I believe, you focus on the patient. What can you do to stimulate? Get in there. Make a change. Think outside the box. But this concept, having passion about helping the patient, was visited by many of the people that we had on the show. 
And here are just a few. Uh, that is a worthy thing to work towards, is to change individuals, families, and communities' lives. And so what would I say to the average therapist is really define what your purpose is and then take a look. What will it take me to stay alive in this profession, to overcome the challenges of all the paperwork and the, and the overwhelming studying of evidence and the, and the lack of knowledge of how to help certain patients? How do you overcome all that? And I think it has to be foundational is that every day, you have to find new to, something new to get excited about. Every day, it's about not being comfortable with what you did yesterday, but becoming better at what you do tomorrow. Find a way to have that fire keep burning inside of you. And when it's not there, go take a class. Go study with somebody that has a fire in them. Uh, do something to help yourself keep that passion growing because it it's insidious. One day, you get through your day and you, you really didn't engage much with your patients, and pretty soon that becomes a habit. I think if you enter this profession, you should have passion. You should have a driving passion about wanting to help people. And when you want to help people, if you're going to follow as a clinician, then I think you have to live what you believe. Take care of your own body, and take care of your mind by having an ongoing search for new knowledge, as well as always having that basic excitement with each patient. And when you stop having that kind of excitement, then I think you really have to ask yourself, why have I lost that patient and what can I do to get that passion to return? Ah, I see a need for passion to learn. I see a lot of young therapists coming out of school and in this modern world of everything being electronic and easy to access, I don't see a lot of therapists coming out of school with the same drive and same passion that my peers and I experienced back in the 70s and early 80s. Um, we teach classes that sometimes go 10 hours, even 11 hours, and I hear a lot of moaning and groaning. I can tell you classes that I would attend that would go six days in a row from eight in the morning till 10 at night and no one complained. We just wanted more. And I, I think we need a passion that drives us to want to be the best we can be. Not just the best so we can just make our patients better, so, but the best we can be so we can go home every night. And we know that, you know what? I've given my profession 110%, so I don't need to bring it home with me now. Now I can go have that other life because I know when I'm at work, I'm giving 110% because I'm driven to know as much as I can about the human body and to develop my skills and to pay attention. And that actually being successful in one part of your life actually opens up the potential to have another life because you're not constantly spilling over with regret or need. At the end of the day, it all does seem to come back to helping the patient. After all of these interviews, it really seemed to come down to a selfless passion 
that existed in these long-standing clinicians and their continued ability to recenter themselves on what brought them into the profession. So for those younger clinicians or those that are somewhere later on in your journey, remember to build a reflective practice, develop your critical thinking, adjust to the patient, facilitate independence, and let your passion drive it all. That's it for the second of a three-part recap of the season. If you didn't listen to the last episode about personal development, that's a must-listen. On the next and final installment, the clinicians and leaders we interviewed reflect on the future. Stay tuned for that. And if you haven't, take a quick second to leave a review down below and share this episode with people you think may benefit from the nudge in their own development as a clinician. Thanks for listening and stay strong.